So go back to 1908, over 100 years ago. There's an Irish explorer named Ernest Shackleton, and he has this dream, the desire to be the first person to make it to the South Pole. Now, I don't know why you'd ever want to go to the South Pole, but someone had to get there first. And so Shackleton has his group, and they have, again, you're talking about over 100 years ago, technology is not what it is today. And so they are kind of, they're roughing it type explorers. And they're on the Antarctic continent, and they're, they're trekking across Antarctica, trying to get to this place. And spoiler alert, at the end, they don't make it. They end up getting 97 miles from the South Pole when they have to turn around because of conditions and rations, and they're running out of food. And so Shackleton's group doesn't make it, but they've turned around, they're on their way back, and they, they're managing what they have left. Most of the guys have really one piece of what they call hardtack left. It's kind of what the average is, and that's like a, a very dried out hard biscuit. Um, and again, you're, not, you're talking about survival type exploring. And so they are bedding down for the night, and some guys have taken snow, and they're making tea out of the snow. Uh, some guys have, have started on to their last piece of hardtack. Other guys have said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not starving yet, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep mine and, you know, for, for the end in case the end comes. Because, again, they're not, they're not guaranteed survival. There's not, a, there's not a reality TV show crew filming this that's going to fly them out at the last minute. These guys are, are real-life century-old explorers. So they're bedding down for the night. Shackleton, who's the leader, is about to go to sleep. They're in their sleeping bags, and he catches out the corner of his eye one of his trusted guys, one of his most trusted guys, acting strange. And so as he's pretending like he's asleep, he's watching. The guy looks around, and he's looking around to see if anybody else is looking because everybody's head to sleep. And when he realizes his coast is clear, he reaches over to the bag of the guy sleeping next to him where his bread is, his last piece of bread. And he reaches in, and he opens it up, and then reaches into his bag, takes out his piece of bread, and puts it in and closes it back up, and rolls over and goes to sleep. That's a great story. That's, that's a story of sacrifice. And I don't know how it all ended. I don't know who made it through that journey and who didn't. But when you see a story like that, where a guy who has a life and death in front of him and chooses to love someone else, chooses to give out of what he has left to, to another person, that, that's a beautiful picture. And the theme of sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice, paints a beautiful picture for us. Um, I mean, it has, it's lined the pockets of movie producers and publishers. The theme of sacrifice has put awards up on those guys' mantles. Sacrifice takes good stories, good stories, and turns them into epic stories. We love sacrifice. In fact, I would guess that if we took a, a poll around the room and, and had everybody write down what your favorite movie was, probably at least half of those movies would have some major theme of sacrifice written through it. Because we're, we're drawn to that. We love sacrifice. But here's, here's the flip side of the coin. We love sacrifice when it's a story, and we love sacrifice when we're on the end of the sacrificial giving, right? Somebody comes up and says, hey, we want to sponsor a teenager for $500. We're going, to, we're going to write that. And it's a sacrifice, not because you have great wealth, but it's costing you something. The teenager who's on the receiving end of that feels blessed. I mean, they, they're like, sacrifice is awesome. I'm glad we talk about that. But the flip side of the coin, the person who is doing the giving, the person who is giving up something that is hard for them to have, something that took them a long time to accumulate, sacrifice isn't always something that we want to sign up for, right? Right? 
because it, it hurts in that perspective. It, it's more difficult for us. If it was easy, we'd all do it. If sacrifice didn't, I mean, sacrifice inherently by its nature costs you something. If it didn't cost us much, if it didn't hurt to sacrifice and to give, we'd all do it, and it wouldn't be that special. Now, here's something that's interesting. And we're talking about friendship, so I want to look at marriage for a second. And just the idea of marriage being the ultimate friendship, the ultimate intimacy. There's a, there's, there's a lot of different statistics of why marriages end. Lots of different people that you can, you know, studies have said, hey, here's the number one cause for divorce. And, and really, depending on where you look, you get different answers. For example, the Huffington Post uh, released an article not too long ago, and they said the, the top two reasons for divorce, one was arguing, and the second thing was infidelity. So arguing was the number one reason for divorce, infidelity was second. But if you go to divorcemagazine.com, which I didn't even know existed, and it's kind of sad that it does, divorcemagazine.com said the two, top two reasons for divorce. One is basic incompatibility, and they said second was finances. Now, arguing, number one for the Huffington Post, and basic incompatibility, those might be the same thing depending on how you research. I think infidelity probably falls in the category of basic incompatibility. Um, if that happens, you're, you're probably going, yeah, we had some issues there. But it, you know, in reality, it doesn't matter what study you look at. It doesn't matter who the statistics are. Statistics can be drawn up to say whatever they want. I'll tell you what the number one reason for divorce is, not in America, in the world. It's the inability to sacrifice. At the end of the day, that's what it is. The inability to sacrifice. It, it, has there been an argument that you had with a spouse if you're married that didn't come down to someone is going to sacrifice their way or the way that they're thinking, right? Infidelity, it's a refusal to sacrifice. It's a refusal to say, you know what, this option uh, of this relationship with someone other than my spouse has presented itself to me. And let's be very honest, the person who has committed infidelity sees that other relationship as a good thing at the, at the moment. They see it as a, as a momentary benefit. They see it as a moment of pleasure, something that, that they want. If they didn't, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't go after it. But a good relationship, a relationship that's not going to end in divorce because of infidelity, says, you know what? This moment that's presented itself for me right now that is very intriguing to me, I'm going to sacrifice my wants and my desires for faithfulness to a spouse who may or may not love me at the moment. At the end of the day, it comes down to the ability for us to sacrifice. In fact, Paul talks about, just again, not talking marriage, but let's just camp there for a minute. When Paul talks about how marriage is supposed to work, he talks about mutual submission. You know what another phrase or word for mutual submission is? Sacrifice. It says, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift your needs and your wants and your desires, and I'm going to place them up at the highest priority, and I'm going to take my own, and I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to put my own at the bottom. That's how great marriages work. But it's not just great marriages. It's how great friendships work. Friendships with your neighbor, with your spouse, with your kids, it's about sacrifice. It's about what am I willing to give in order for your dreams and your hopes to be met? What am I willing to give up so that you feel loved. We got to figure that out in our relationships. So I'll give you an example of how it happens in friendships. It may, it, we're talk, you know, I talked about money with Poland. It doesn't have to be money. When I was in college, um, I had a roommate and we lived in the dorm. I went to a, a private university and, and uh, they get a lot of their money from housing. And so 
Uh, you know, you go to a big school, and you can go in as a freshman, and you can live off campus immediately. But at, at a small school where I went, they, they required you be on campus for like three semesters or two years because that was some of the income while you're living in that overpriced dorm and paying that overpriced food bill. And so, you know, once you're, once you're told you have to live in the dorm, then, you know, the clock is ticking for every student because now they want out of the dorm, essentially because we have to be in there. And so it was, I went to Howard Payne University. It's in Brownwood, Texas, a little small place. And, and in reality, you could actually rent a house for cheaper than you could live in a dorm in Brownwood. And so, man, we were all looking forward to that, like, finish line where we had, we had done our time in the dorm prison, and we could go out and be on our own with, with no curfew, no anything else. And, and so my roommate was one of my best friends. My other best friend lived across the hallway from us. And our time came, and we were ready to move out, and the guy I was living with said, hey, and I can't even remember what reasons were because it was so long ago. He said, I, I can't move out this semester. I'm going to move out the next semester. And so I said, and this was quite the sacrifice of the time, I'll stay in the dorm one more semester with you. So our buddy across the hall, he goes out, and he gets a, a house with some other guys, and, and, and he's now living the free life, you know, no curfew, um, no rules, no regulations, no central heat and air, you know, all of those things that come with a, a, a cheap house in Brownwood, Texas. And, um, then our semester ends, and it's the summertime. And so we've kind of gone about, he's, my, my roommate's gone home for a little bit, and so I've looked for a place. I'm working in a small church there in the Brownwood area, so I start looking for a place to live during the summer because I can't live in the dorm. So I call my buddy Lee, who had lived across from me that's living in this house, and he says, hey, well, we've got one of our roommates that's going home for the summer, so we have an extra bed. This would be perfect. You can come in and take his spot. And so I said, great. So I go move in there for the summer, and it's fantastic. I mean, it is true college living. Our house, I'm not kidding you, was purple paint. On the, not, not purple accented. It was purple with pink trim. I think it was like a, an old nail salon or something like that before it became a house. I don't know what. We had an interior wall that you could see from the street that was turquoise. I mean, it was crazy stuff. We painted that thing black, and uh, you know, just the—I don't know why we left everything else purple and pink, but we just couldn't live with the turquoise wall. So I move in with them. So there's four guys living in this two-bedroom house for the summer. And so as the summer's coming to an end, my roommate Ricky, who's gone home for the summer, is coming back, and another good friend of mine named Chris is coming back. And so we're going to be looking for a, a three-bedroom house or a three-bedroom apartment. And so for the summer, my job while they're gone and I'm living in the purple house is to look for our our home or our apartment for the fall. And so I don't really jump on it, you know, early because there's no reason finding it in June when you can't move in until August. And so as we're getting closer, um, I start looking. I find a couple of places that are like three-bedroom type places. And, and I'm thinking, man, I got kind of two or three ideas that look like they'll be open about the time we want to move in. And about two weeks before school starts, I find out that my roommate who I'd lived with for two years and some of y'all have heard this story in another scenario. He's ended up gone home for the summer, and he's ended up gotten, getting, gotten a girl pregnant and is now married, and none of us knew. So he's not coming back to Brownwood, and I find out like two weeks before. And I'm like, oh, my God. So this is, switch, this is now changing everything because when you're two college guys, you're not looking for a three-bedroom house, right? I mean, that, now you're looking, well, maybe we can even get a, a one-bedroom apartment and split it. And so I, I call Chris, and I tell him, I said, hey, Ricky's out, tell him the whole story. And Chris is like, okay, well, let's change plans. So we're getting down to school's going to start like the next week. And so Chris has come down. He lives in the Panhandle. He's come down to get ready for school. And so um, he's staying with a buddy. I'm still staying in the Purple House. And now we're, we've got like five days before school starts, and we're out looking to put down deposits. 
and we're trying to decide between this house and this apartment. And now we're fast forward to about, I'm not exaggerating, two days before school starts. We're driving around, and Chris looks at me as we're driving over to the apartment. He goes, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you see where this is going. Man, dude, I, I should have told you this earlier. I just didn't know how to tell you, but I'm not coming back to school this semester. Two days before school starts, and the guy whose bed I'm sleeping in is coming back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, one, I, don't even, I can't afford a place all by myself. The dorms are full. Now I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do in, in, in two days. I go back to the Purple House, and I'm like fretting, and I'm telling the guys, I'm like, man, I don't know what to do. I'm telling the story, and they're like, man, we can't believe this. And one of them says this. It's, it's a two-bedroom house. They got two beds in each room. They said, hey, let us call Jace, who was coming back. Let's call Jace and see what he thinks, and maybe we'll just do five guys in this house. And we'll go get a bunk bed, and we'll put a bunk bed here. And I'm like, are you, are you serious? Like, can we hug? You know, and Jace was like, I'm all in. So these guys come up like at the last minute in the 11th hour, and I would say they may not see it this way, you may not see it this way, but at that moment in my life, I saw that as a huge sacrifice, for, especially for the guys whose room I was going to be in, that they were going to put three beds in one room, and it fit, it was a big room, and, but still for them to say, hey, we are going to, we, we're going to figure this out because we want you to stay, that was sacrifice. And to this day, now I'm 40, I look back at that moment and I look at those guys and I see how their friendship rose because of their willingness to sacrifice, especially the two guys in, the, in, in that room. The other two guys, not so much. All they did was split their rent lower. Uh, but the two guys that were going to be lived with, to me, that was great sacrifice. And that is what friendships are about, to be able to say, this is going to be inconvenient for us. We, n- nobody was thinking, yeah, I want three guys in one room with all five guys sharing one bathroom. Ugh. That is five college guys sharing one bathroom. It's, a, it's amazing the city didn't come and shut the house down, you know. But, but to say, hey, we're in, that was, that was a big deal to me. Well, sacrifice is what makes a good friendship great. Sacrifice is what makes a good friendship great. I want you to turn to Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew, not Matthew, John 15, and we're going to look back at this passage of Scripture we've been in and see what Jesus says. Now, I'm going to read the the whole paragraph, and I'm going to read it each Sunday morning. You'll be very familiar with it. John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you'll love one another. So last week, if you missed last week, you can go and get it off iTunes. It's on the podcast. We looked at verse 12 where Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And last week, and I hope you, you walk through this with your kids, and they're talking about it right now down the hallway, we said that great friends love like Jesus does. It's simple. Jesus says, love like I love you. 
And I, and I challenge you, and I hope some of you took this up, I challenge you to, to pick a gospel and to start working through it, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, and going through, and I've started doing this myself, and go through each chapter, and when you see Jesus talking to his friends or relating to his friends, jot down some ideas that, that you see happening. And I can tell you this, I, I'm very early on in the process. I chose the gospel of John just in the first couple of chapters. And already the Holy Spirit started to bring some things out to me that I went, man, I've never seen. For example, in just the first chapter of John, Two different times, Jesus speaks words of encouragement and potential in the lives of people. And as I'm reading through that, of how to be a great friend, and going back to Scripture, what did Jesus do? What I realized, and this is a huge weakness of mine, something that God has now laid on my heart as I've journeyed through the Gospel of John, is that as a friend, as a person with a great relationship, or who wants to have great relationships, I need to see potential in people and point it out. And I need to encourage my friends. When I see them doing things I admire, I need to say something to them about it. I'm not good at that. I'm the type of person who, I mean, I'm not an encourager. I'm kind of a bottom line. If you do something great, something well, you should do that. I mean, I pity my kids, right? I mean, you know, you know people are like, hey, we're going to have a graduation party. I'm like, you should graduate. I mean, right? I mean, what are we celebrating? I, I'm not like April 15th going, hey, paid my taxes. I am awesome. You're supposed to do that, you know? And so that, that's the way I'm wired. And so that's something I've got to work on. And man, I'm, I'm learning through that. And so I hope you do that through verse 12. But we look at verse 13, and that's where we're going to be this week. And look at what Jesus says. He, he's defined how we should love. We should love like Jesus does. And, he, and we raise the bar. You remember that? We said that that, that, that agapao love is, is a deep and constant love that comes from a perfect being God, and it's poured out on an unworthy beneficiary. And we said, man, that, that's hard. Now, Jesus raises the bar again, and he says, that's love, but here is greater love. Greater love has no one than this. You cannot love more than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Mike drop, if he had a mic at the time, but he didn't. And Jesus can, can step away. He does, and he's going to talk some more. But he says, hey, you want to know how to love in a way that no one can, can lay a trump card down. You want to love in the way that it is, the, is the highest bar. Be willing to lay down your life for a friend. And Jesus isn't, we, we know, because we're able to look at this hindsight. Disciples didn't know at the time, but we know Jesus is going to do that. And we also know that when Jesus says lay down your life, he's not speaking figuratively. I mean, he, he speaks figuratively in other places of the Scripture. He says, you know, hey, if your eye caused you to sin, gouge it out. He's, he's using hyperbole to make a point. He's not making hyperbole here. He lived it. But also this word when he says lay down your life, the word uh, means to give up your last breath. To be willing to say, I will give you everything that is mine. I will give you everything for you to succeed because I want to be a great friend. We talked about last week. You can't control your friends. You can control you. I'm willing to be the great friend that I will give you everything that I have all of my possessions. I'll give you the shirt off my back. I will give you everything I have up until that last breath. And when the last breath leaves, I'm out. Cannot give any more. But I'm willing to go that distance to be a great friend. And that is hard to wrap our minds around. So last night, um, was the one-year anniversary for our family for where my oldest child decided to follow Jesus. It was last, last night, February 13th, a year ago. And so it, it just so happens that that's also the night that I take the oldest one out on her Valentine's dad date dinner. And so we got dressed up last night, put on a tie. She got in a dress, and we went over to a restaurant in town. And um, as we're sitting there having dinner, 
we started talking about just some spiritual things. I mean, it's not, I know it sounds very pastoral. We also did a word find and talked about school stuff. But we started talking about this idea of radical generosity because we have some friends um, who are having some financial issues. Um, they're having some car troubles and things like that. And, and the, the cost to get their car fixed is pretty expensive. But we also have some other friends that have stepped up and said, hey, we want, we're going we're gonna to walk into the life of these people and we want to practice radical generosity. And so I'm talking to my nine-year-old about it, and, and I'm, I'm gauging her for, you know, her responses. What would you do? What, what would you consider radical generosity? Now, you understand the nine-year-old's a saver. She's got like 150 bucks in her room right now. I'm like, where did this come from? She's like, and she just doesn't spend. Like, I'll take her on a dad-daughter dates, and she'll be like, no, let's not go get ice cream because that costs extra money. And we don't talk about like, we're not like walking around the house like going, no one spend money. I mean, she just, she's wired that way of I'm not going to spend, I'm going to save. So when you talk about radical generosity with a saver that's nine, like, you know, I even asked her after we talked about this relationship as the waitress came. And I said, like, here's the, here's the bill. The tip says that we should give $3. What would you say is radical generosity? And she goes, I think $3 works. You know? And I, <laughs> so I was having her literally repeat after me, my father, my father, wants me, wants me to grow up, to grow up, and be radically generous. You know, she's like, and she's, I'm not kidding, she's like, to be radically, I said, please say it, and she's now messing with me. And she just doesn't think that way. So as we're talking that, though, we go to Acts 2, and we didn't flip with them, but we're just talking about it. But in Acts 2 at the first church, I love verses 42 through 45, gives us this picture of the church, and in verse 45, we find out that the, that the early church made this decision for radical generosity, that they would sell everything they have for each other. All of a sudden, that becomes a small group that a lot of us go, hey, I don't want to be a part of that small group. I'm going to find another one. I'm going to find the other small group where we pray for each other. That's, that's my small group right there. Well, you're about to be bankrupt? I'll pray for you, brother. And, uh, that small group over there is going to sell their own stuff for you, and I can't do that. But that, that's what the early church, that was the picture, this radical generosity of a church that said, hey, you know what? Because great friend, good friendships become great friendships by sacrifice because we are walking together as a family. We will sell off the things we have to give to you so that you can be successful. And I'm trying to communicate this to this nine-year-old, and it's just going to be a process, I think, because she's not quite there. But that would be difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, how many, don't raise your hand, would you be willing to sell one of your cars and figure out how to live with your family with one, you and your spouse, if you're married? Would you sell your car to give that, not loan it, to give it to someone else? That, that's Acts 2, 45. How many of us would be going, hey, you know what, I got a lot of equity in my house and I'm planning on that for retirement, but you know what, we're going to downsize right now because we have people that we love that are in need. And God has provided because it's not mine. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. And so, Lord, if you want me to sell my house and downsize and take that equity and give it away. Now, now most of you are going, that is great in theory, but you are absolutely crazy. It's just radical generosity. It's the radical generosity that made Christianity explode in the first century. And maybe the reason why we're seeing doors closed on churches every Sunday for good because we don't understand what it means to sacrifice for people we love. And then Jesus takes the Acts 2.45 concept of selling off everything you have, and he says, give your life. Be willing to die. Now, we'd be willing to die 
for our kids, for a spouse. But what about for somebody you don't know? Model Jesus gave. Okay, to be fair, he's God, so he knew everybody, even the people who were coming. But he wasn't walking with them and talking with them. But that is, that is great sacrifice. And it happened at the cross. So as we read Jesus here, we're not reading Jesus going, oh, that's great in theory, Jesus. What a fantastic teaching you've given. And you've really raised it to a whole other level. Jesus said, you know what? Because you're my friends, not only will I teach you about it, I'm going to show you what it looks like. And an innocent man didn't just go to the cross, was whipped and beaten and hung on a cross until he suffocated death for the people that he called friends. And then he said, love like I love. Good friendships go to great friendships when you learn to sacrifice. So here's, here's an application. I try to give you a different, I try to give you lists of things just each week to get your mind going, how you can practice. I'm only giving you one, and it's this, to identify a need of someone that cost you something. Last week, one of the applications was to lay down before you go to bed, think of one person, a friend, and reflect back on the day. If you did this, I, I trust God spoke to you. Reflect back, God, how could I have loved them like you loved them, and let God speak and to do that over the course of the week? Well, if you did that, I can guarantee you this. I, I know God has spoken into your life. You've seen something. His spirit has made clear a way that you could meet that friend's need. And again, it may not be money. It may not be an Acts 2.45, go sell something. It may be a sacrifice of time. It may be a sacrifice of one of your goals to go in and say, you know what, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to love this person. But here's what I want you to understand. If you have great wealth or you have lots of time or you meet goals all the time and you're giving out of your surplus, that's not necessarily sacrifice. You know what Jesus said? I'm running out of time. Jesus pointed to the widow. All the people are going up at the offering plate in one of the Gospels, and they're putting their money into the offering, and it's making a lot of noise. And a little widow goes up, and she's got two pennies, which means, I mean, don't, don't buy anything. And she walks up with these two pennies and puts them in, and Jesus points her out to the disciples and says, all of them gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She gave all she had. The sacrifice of that widow was much greater than the sacrifice of the person with wealth. So if you're walking, and you, you know, you're walking around with 10 grand in your pocket right now and you hand $20 to somebody to help meet their need, that is a great blessing and a good thing that you've done. But let's not call it sacrifice. And so what I want you to step into this week is giving something, and again, not having to be financial, giving till it hurts because that's what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is giving up something that it's hard to let go of. It's, it's, it's a little bit painful. And when you do that, you identify with Jesus more than you would if you gave out of your surplus. And that's, that's where we're headed. Part of giving is for the other person. We go to Poland for Polish people to know Jesus. I don't tell our teenagers this unless they ask directly. We also go to Poland because of the work that God's going to do in their life. I don't tell them that because I tell them we are not going for you. We are going for them. Don't complain. Don't whine. You're going to sleep. You might sleep on the floor. You're going to be in an airplane forever. Tell them that. But I know that when they sacrifice their spring break, and I'll tell you what, if you're a parent, you're probably going to hate me come Monday morning the week after spring break when your kid's like the most evil, grouchy child there ever has been 
because they spent their spring break from, from dawn until dusk, and they've paid a lot of money, and they have spent everything they have emotionally, and they're going to come back and land Saturday night, and I'm going to be honest with them. I'm going to guilt them about being in church the next morning because I'm going to have to be here, and I don't want to be here by myself, <laughs> and they're going to be worn out. But in their sacrifice, God is going to do amazing things. So it's going to happen both ways. Real quickly, I'm running out of time. Johnny Oates, uh, if you're a baseball fan, if you're a Rangers fan, we've kind of already discussed the fact that the American League is not real baseball, but I'll, we'll talk about it for a second. Hey, hey, hey. Johnny Oates was manager for the Rangers for a couple of years in the 90s. and um, I didn't really know this until reading a story about him. I think it was spring of 1995. He's just come on. I think he'd just taken over the Rangers. And that was the years of Pudge Rodriguez and Juan Gonzalez, the steroid years, but also the American League Championship years that, you know, when the Rangers were doing fantastic. And he's got this great team. He's got a chance at a World Series. Now, as, as a baseball guy, a manager, you know you don't get to be a, become a, ma- a manager of a Major League Baseball team unless you're devoted to baseball. I mean, a guy like that's going to wrestle. When we talk about my strange addictions, he's going to wrestle with the God of achievement and things like that. I mean, that, that, they're wired that way. That would be a struggle for him. Spring, right before the season starts, Johnny Oates' wife is hospitalized for emotional and physical exhaustion. And so the guy who's got the World Series chance in front of him steps away from the team to go be with his wife. That's a picture of sacrifice. It's not a financial sacrifice. But it's a sacrifice of a goal and a, or a potential goal and a potential dream in order to love someone well. It's where we're headed. I had a pastor tell a story about um, he and his family that were at, at, a, at a family get-together, and they'd been swimming earlier in the day, and they'd kind of closed up everything, and everybody was upstairs on the, on the back patio, and people were inside. and um, Having a good time, there's a two-year-old named Blair and a five-year-old named Jack that were children, you know, of family members, and, and they're playing around. And, and in the family situation, people are talking, they lose sight of the two-year-old and the five-year-old. Well, two-year-old Blair's been swimming earlier, so she's still in her brand-new pink swimsuit, and somebody accidentally has left the gate open that goes down the stairs to the swimming pool. And so in the midst of the party, Blair walks her way down the swimming pool, and Jack, the five-year-old, is following her down, and they're playing near the swimming pool. And Blair decides to take a couple of steps into the swimming pool. And then she gets waist deep, and she has no floaties on. And then she goes off the step and goes underwater. And the five-year-old Jack sees it, screams for help, starts yelling for, his, for uh, Johnny, Uncle Johnny, who is nearby. And the five-year-old jumps into the pool in all of his clothes and can't swim either. When Uncle Johnny jumps into the pool... Jack is underneath his sister, pushing her up so that she can get air. Now, here's the good news. Uncle Johnny grabs them both and pulls them out, and they both survive, no problems, things like that. It's a good story, right? Everybody gets nervous about kids, like in a swimming pool. Johnny grabs them and pulls them both out. But here's the, here's the cool part of the story. That next school year, kindergarten rolls around in first grade, and they have to talk about what happens during the summer. And Jack draws a picture, and he writes a, writes a story or tells a story about how his little sister was drowning and he and his Uncle Johnny jumped in and saved her. I started thinking, here's a kid, five-year-old, who loved his sister enough he was willing to sacrifice all 
not just yelling for help, jumping in full close, pushing her up while he's underwater. But here's the cool thing. When he tells the story, he had a part of that, which is awesome. He also knows the part that Uncle Johnny jumped in and rescued them both. So my question for you, as we're talking about great friendships, and that could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be somebody you know, will there be a story told about you one day of great sacrifice where you gave to lift someone else up? And at the end of the story, we're also talking about someone else, Jesus, who sacrificed greatly for both. Great, good friendships become great friendships when we sacrifice. And I wonder, as you love people well, if there won't be some story down the road of someone who breathes eternally for the first time, who experiences Jesus and meets Jesus because of your sacrifice and Jesus using your sacrifice to pour out his sacrifice onto their lives and yours. John 15 tells us a lot about being friends. That great friends love like Jesus does. And that good friendships become great friendships when we sacrifice.